Hello, I'm Alan Higgins, and you are listening to the Design Talk podcast. The following recording is a cross-pod release with The Blind Spot, a podcast created by Tina Lowe, Accessibility Officer at University College Dublin, Ireland. This episode was recorded on the 27th of October, 2021. Welcome to The Blind Spot. I'm your host, Tina Lowe. This podcast looks to show everyone about making Ireland accessible for all. Today's episode, we are going to chat with Blanet Gavin and Deirdre O'Connor about invisible disabilities. So you're both very welcome. We're going to start today by talking to Blanet, and I'm going to ask you, Blanet, if you don't mind, give me a little bit about your background. Thank you, Tina, and thanks for the invite to be here today. I'm really delighted to have this chance to be talking on this topic. So. I am a child and adolescent psychiatrist and I've worked for 20 years in clinical practice with people with different uh, types of mental health difficulties. Over the last 15 years or so I've been working with children and teenagers and I specialise currently in, in children with different neurodevelopmental conditions, mostly ADHD. So that's my clinical background if you like and okay. then I also work here in the university in the School of Medicine. Okay, that's great. And Deirdre? Thanks, Tina. And again, thanks for the invitation to be here. I'm an academic. I'm a lecturer and researcher in the School of Agriculture and Food Science in the College of Agricultural and Health Sciences. So in addition to lecturing and researching, I'm an Associate Dean for Equality, Diversity and Inclusion in the school as well. Grace, very welcome both of you. Thank you so much. Thank so, Blanet, can I start by asking you, can you explain to me the term neurodiversity? Sure. So it's a term that's uh, growing in uh, popularity almost, but it's, it's been around maybe 10, 20 years. And essentially what it refers to is the idea that just like so many forms of diversity in human life or biodiversity, there's differences in neurological development and people have different cognitive processes and there's diversity in how our brains work and the thinking is that probably about 70 or 80 percent of the population is so-called neurotypical where their brain is fairly similar in terms of its cognitive functioning so you could be better at some things than others as we all are but there's a reasonably limited amount of variation in that and then they estimate that maybe 10 or 20% of the population have a much more spiky cognitive profile where the people within this cluster in the population have much more difference, much more variability between things that come very easily for them and that they are particularly able for and other areas of cognitive functioning that are much more challenging. And that really is the concept of neurodiversity, the essence that there is a difference in the population cognitive functioning, just as you'd expect in any aspect of of the human condition, if you like. Is the term neurodiversity used now because it's it's a, trying to show that we are all different as opposed to being, say, 
I would have said in the past, possibly discriminated against or marginalised. Can you talk to me a bit about that, the way invisible disabilities are probably have changed in the past 20 years? Yeah, I think your question there is um, very well put. It's, it's looking at that idea of difference and diversity as opposed to there being a right and a wrong. And the idea with it is that there is a natural variation and that natural variation contributes to the richness of all our life experiences, just as it does across all the ecological spectrum. And that's what is represented. And it's not about framing people as being deficient in some way, that it's recognising that there's a different way of being. And the idea of framing it in that way is not just about recognising difference rather than deficit, but it's also about reframing the way society thinks that if we see it as difference rather than deficit, then we can do something about thinking about, well, how do we embrace this difference? How do we bring it to its fullest fruition? And how do we adapt so that it, is, it doesn't become a deficit just yeah. because of the way society responds? So, so that's the change you would see possibly in the last 20 years a much more positive I think so. I think think there's a lot more positive embracing. I think there's a lot more desire to understand. And I think there's a lot more desire to accommodate. And I think there's also a sense of greater aspiration that instead of the idea that, you know, you're just going to clunk people into a particular box, that there's a sense that everybody has something to bring to the table. And embracing difference allows that and facilitates that sense that if uh, if we're all there at the table, we all will contribute meaningfully and therefore we all have a greater chance to fulfil our potential. It's very good. And would that be why I see that you have set up a neurodiversity institute? Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, so what we're doing here in UCD is we're looking at establishing, and well, we have established in what we're calling the Neurodiversity Project. And from a personal point of view, the reason behind that was that I was very aware from my clinical practice of the, the real challenges that people who were within the neuro-minority or neurodivergent population have in, first of all, making their way through the education system to get to university. And then when in university, the increased challenges they experience of making their way through that process and, and out the other side and into employment. And that's also mirrored in the experience of staff who all with a neurodivergent population. So clinically, I was really interested in this um, work because it's what I face every day in my clinical practice. And I was aware that there was increasing moves internationally in different universities and employment sectors to try and create more awareness of the need to embrace neurodiversity, attract people who identify as neurodiverse and really look at different ways of supporting the journey through the education experience, if you like, for those who are neurodiverse. So that's what that's about. And so we've set up a working group here in the university to try and promote awareness of neurodiversity, among other aims. And then the Institute of Neurodiversity is a new institute that launched, and it's an institute that's trying to bring together all different aspects of the neurodiverse community. And we're hoping to be part of that in terms of uh, research and teaching collaborations. Very good. And is that based here? No, it is um, actually based in Switzerland and it's um, been run as a very much a community initiative by which is meant that that the population is the neurodiverse community and then they're reaching out to involve people from different aspects of academia and employment to co-work and collaborate with the neurodiverse community. And employers. Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. Fantastic initiative. That's progress. (laughs) 
Deirdre, turning to you, I just say before we start that I had the privilege to be in Deirdre's class many moons ago in when I was a student, a mature student in my first year of my Equality Studies Masters and Deirdre was my lecturer and that's the last time since I have met Deirdre except we've spoken many times now in the last few years in UCD because Deirdre, could you talk to me about your work here, your role as a lecturer and yeah. where you started and now where you are now. Yeah, Thanks, Tina. And you're right, Tina, it does not seem like uh, <laughs> 21 years yeah. um, since I was happy to be involved in the, the programme and equality studies on, on which you were a student. Mm. And since that, our paths have crossed more recently because one of my roles is I chair the uh, UCD subcommittee on disability, which is run through the uh, EDI unit. So as, as a member of that committee, Tina, we've had lots of opportunities to collaborate since then. And as I said, I also am a lecturer and researcher in the School of Agriculture and Food Science. And I also am our Associate Dean for Equality, Diversity and Inclusion. And I think as you've Probably, as is well known, I have both a personal and a professional uh, interest in the area of disability and specifically invisible disability because I have multiple sclerosis. So it is, I'd say, probably, Ronald would confirm this, probably a classic invisible disability in in many ways. So that's really just my own background and interest in, in this area. Very good. And can you talk to me, Deirdre, about your role as Associate Dean on the EDI, Equality, Diversity, Inclusion Group, and what you're doing currently with the as a faculty partner on the sure, university yeah. for all. Yeah, well, you know, I think the, the role as Associate Dean is, well, it's it can be as broad and, or as narrow as, as you wish, but I think a lot of it is really about kind of raising awareness about EDI-related issues and acting as a kind of a, a bridge, I, be, I think, between what's happening at university level and what's happening at school level. So, again, trying to raise awareness, promote the issues that are being rolled out, if you like, within the university And in that context, I think the whole kind of University for All project, which, you know, you would know a lot more about than than I would, but really the whole idea of, you know, ensuring that the the university is a more accessible and inclusive space for everybody, for staff and students. But within that, something I've got involved with more recently, which you're referring to, is the idea of universal design for learning for students. And there's been a big rollout of that programme in recent years. And it's really, I think it's highly relevant to what we're talking about and indeed to some of what Blanad has has said there. You know, it's just recognising that our student population is, is really diverse and operates and comes from a whole range of, of different contexts. So kind of experiences learning differently. So within that context, then, it's really about trying to, I think the phrase is often used, multiple modes, but, you know, multiple modes, if you like, of how we assess students, how we engage with students, how we kind of present information and knowledge and material to them. So this UDL, or Universal Design for Learning project, which UCD is really behind at the moment, is just about trying to promote that throughout the university and trying to get buy-in from colleagues and, to a lesser extent, from students who are very, I think, very open to this and I think have a lot to teach us in that regard. Yeah, exactly, because the students themselves would register with the university when they want to get support. So I think that's always been a difference between, say, staff and students, you know, because it's more 
it's kind of individual choice for staff. Yeah. So can I ask you, Deirdre, a similar, similar question to what I asked Blanet? How do you think that an invisible disability impacts on a person's life? And how do you think that we can create awareness to try and improve people's knowledge and say understanding of what an invisible disability is as opposed to what you can see yeah well I suppose I'm in answering this I'm kind of wearing a a couple of hats as I said there is the the professional side and the you know the initiatives I'm involved in there but there's also kind of the personal experience and i probably more comfortable talking about that because it's it is my own lived experience and I think I'm also conscious that as we've said you know there's just so many different contexts and factors and you know it plays out for people in in very different ways but I suppose in my own experience if you like as I said I have MS um, for about 13 years I have a form called relapsing remitting MS which means I have periods often long periods when I'm not really impacted by it at all and then other periods where I just get flare-ups or I get relapses which are kind of totally unpredictable and and you know just very hard to predict and as you probably know like MS is it's a neurological uh, disease it has I suppose kind of sensory components which mean you know, numbness and pins and needles and those kinds of of issues. And then it also has motor um, symptoms which affect your your balance and your mobility and spasticity and all those things. So I think in my experience, and I think a lot of people with invisible disabilities or chronic conditions would say that, you know, the whole unpredictability of a lot of invisible disabilities can be really challenging because... You know, as my own consultant says, it's nothing you do or nothing you don't do in terms of getting relapses. They just come out of the blue. So I I think the unpredictability and and living with that Mm. can be, you know, challenging because it's the sword of Damocles hanging over your head. And the other issue is that invisibility. You know, Mm. I know it's a, a cliche, but people do talk about invisible disabilities as they use the analogy of an iceberg, you know, that you really only get to see about 10% yeah. of what is going on yeah. for, for the person. It's a very good, isn't it? It's yeah, a very so good analogy. Yeah, the tip of the iceberg. It, it literally that. Yeah. So I, I think that, and it comes back to just, again, what we were saying about kind of teaching and learning, that, you know, first from a student perspective, if we recognise that, you know, a pro- proportion of them are students may have invisible disabilities, you know, we've no idea what's going on for them. They may appear to be functioning very well and I think that whole phenomenon of masking your disability is very common among people with invisible disabilities but I think it's important to note that that often comes at a cost you know it comes at a cost to your kind of physical health and your mental health so I think just bringing a kind of an awareness of that iceberg dimension and the unpredictability which I think the unpredictability is often not just an issue for the person themselves but you know for colleagues and mm. friends and you know you can appear to be fine and yeah. sign up for things and you know yeah volunteer for things and then at the last minute out of nowhere you can just get slammed yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. you know yeah. so all of that is I think challenging for everybody you know? exactly and that is the difficulty I, I always think what people can't see they just don't understand sure completely. and they find it very yeah. hard yeah. to fathom you know so so it's really good to try and create awareness yeah 
So I'd just like to yeah. ask you as well, Deirdre, if you don't mind, sure. on just given that we've been in 20 months probably mm-hmm. of a pandemic, mm-hmm. how it has impacted yeah. your, your role, uh, your wor- yeah. working and also your yeah. colleagues in you know, well, it's it's funny. I, um, I mean, as I, I think a lot of people would would know that just having a good support network of you know like minded people is is really important. But one of my friends who also has MS said to me recently, you know, she thinks the experience that everybody has had of kind of unpredictability and just the total, just the total change in everybody's environment. And, and she said, I sometimes hear my non-disabled friends saying, you know, just how difficult this is. And she said, I feel like saying, well, welcome to my world, you know, <laughs> because this is really <laughs> what I think a lot of people with disabilities live with all the time, this kind of sword of Damocles over your head. Um, so, you know, I, I think it is obviously, while it's been a, a really challenging whatever it has been 20 months now for everybody, I think it is compounded when you have a disability and, and an invisible disability in particular. And one of the reasons I'd say that is, you know, I think a lot of people have been kind of flushed out, for want of a better word, in, in the last 20 months in that, you know, I think the whole issue around disclosure of one's disability is a very, very sensitive topic. And I think, again, that's compounded if you're in if your disability is invisible but I think for a lot of reasons a lot of people with disabilities have had to kind of disclose in the last 20 months with really without really being ready to to do so you know because I do think that whole issue of disclosure is really sensitive and really problematic for a lot of people and again in terms of how such people can be supported in general kind of working environments or study environments and UCD in particular is you know just being really aware of the need to be kind of flexible and supportive and to have not a one-off conversation but to make it clear that you know if you have a disability or a chronic illness whatever it's a lifelong Mm. thing you know and it's not a box ticking exercise so you know I, I think there is a lot of work to be done around managing people's disclosures sensitively and I think COVID has really put the spotlight on that because a lot of people are not ready to do so and kind of feel bounced into it. I suppose I can relate back to about a year ago Tina and I and Bonnet actually were involved in a podcast actually we did on invisible disabilities and as part of it we invited again staff colleagues with disabilities just to send in kind of anonymous contribution and one of the issues that came up repeatedly was this issue of disclosure you know and I I think just the message that comes back is it really does require a very high level of trust on all sides you know and particularly in relation to invisible disability you know think of things like chronic pain for example or you know it does require a lot of trust I think it requires a lot of flexibility as well that no more than the students who find multiple means of engaging or working to be really helpful, so do staff, you know, and I think, again, that requires trust. And I think it requires kind of an ongoing conversation as well, because I think for a lot, say in my own case, I could go for years where I'm not impaired at all and I don't need any support, and then out of nowhere as has happened me, I get a relapse that puts me in hospital for weeks and puts me out of work for two months, you know, so that requires a bit of flexibility and, again, trust and 
yeah, trust, trust mm, yeah. and flexibility. I think are the big things. Yeah, I t- and that that's really what it's all about, isn't it? It's, it is the trust and it's the difference. In I often think that students with disabilities are it's fantastic because you see they have to register, so they have to disclose their disability to get the supports. And once they do that, then it's like it's a big you know burden is yeah. lifted off, and they do it and they're fine and they realize that they can attend classes, get exam supports, get supports they require, assistive technology, and it's really good, whereas it's different for staff, so it is all about disclosure. Tina, could I just ask, do you think you pick up most students who have disabilities, or do you think there's a proportion that you... I would say, I'd be very happy to say now, in the last few years, that we have got a huge amount of students now with disabilities, whereas before we didn't. And I think that's because the whole emphasis has changed. And where we work, it's everybody who is, say, from a diverse background is in the Access and Lifelong Learning Centre. So it's disabilities, it's mature students, it's people from different backgrounds. You know, it's completely different. And I think then the fact that they celebrate us and they have scholarships, so they have prize givings and the, like bursaries and then they go to secondary schools and run programs to encourage people to go to um, university. I think it's far more positive than when I was a mature student. <laughs> yeah. I would agree with you there that I yeah. definitely think it's far more positive but I wouldn't imagine that we're capturing everybody that would be my my, my yeah. sense of it I don't think we have the data to be confident yeah. um, but my my sense would be that there for a number of different reasons that, yeah. that people there's an underrepresentation really of of numbers as well as yeah you're right especially we'd say as a lot of students for example mature students um I know myself I was in primary school late 70s early 80s in secondary and there's a number of people in my class who had dyslexia and that was like, nobody knew what dyslexia was. It was treated as something that you weren't capable of. So they always kept the people back. So I, I remember that vividly because years later, I now, you know, work in the area. But it was just incredible the way these people were treated. Instantly, automatically assumed that they wouldn't be able to work. Or And the irony was, it was three girls. One of them became a mathematician for the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank. The other person was a head chef, you know, and went on to do a master's and get a first. And, you know, it was, it's just amazing that I think, I think it's great to see when, you know, with education. And I think the term neurodiversity is such a positive thing because, you know, I, people with Asperger's or on the autism spectrum have been so misunderstood for so many years. And with lots of other invisible disabilities I just think it's that's the positive thing but you're right you you don't capture everybody and you don't capture some people who say left the system because they weren't supported or their teachers or whoever it was didn't understand that they had learning disabilities or dyspraxia or dyscalculia you know so yeah so but I, I I do think it's improved that's all I'd say I'm not saying it's perfect but I'd say it's improved. I'd very much I'd very much agree with you. And I think that the point on trust is very, very important across the board, be it staff or students. And to me, one thing that would spring to mind when you'd mentioned the idea of trust, it's, well, what helps us to trust something? And usually um, part of trust is formed by 
our sense of knowing what will happen if we do something. And so a question I would think of when you're asking the question about well, what's the best way to open a dialogue on uh, disclosure is how much does somebody have actual facts about what this disclosure will bring about? How much certainty is there as to who knows what, how people will judge, will there be changes of opinion, what will go with it? And I think it's often those sort of known unknowns or unknown unknowns that that really, really impact on on trust. And that would be my experience for students trying to decide how to disclose and maybe mirrored, I would imagine, in the staff experience. I think you're absolutely right. And I think it is also, you know, related to the, as the person, say, with the disability, just the extent of kind of control you feel you have over the the situation and, you know, the terms and conditions, as you rightly say, on which you disclose. And it kind of speaks to think to something maybe a little bit more abstract, which is the whole idea of the kind of the narratives that go around disability and invisible disability. And again, I can only speak to MS, but I'm sure they're they're there in other domains as well. But, you know, you often see these narratives as, you know, you are the warrior or you're the superhero or you're the sufferer or you're the, yeah, or the the tragedy narrative also. You know, I often hear that in the kind of neurodiversity debate as well. And a lot of the times you're not, you know, you just want to get on with your your life, you know. And as I said, it's not, I'm sure some people find those narratives very helpful. And if they do, that's great. But I think it's just the issue of not having kind of other people's narratives thrust upon you and being able to kind of control it yourself. And I think related to that, and I'm sure it's not just, I know it's not just an issue in in the context of invisible disability, but the extent to which you when you do disclose you become public property you know and depending on your personality and it's certainly the case in my case I I don't like that feeling you know of being public property and everybody thinks it's kind of open season they can comment on you know your appearance your it's very true you know so I think that can be difficult as well so I think it's about controlling your own story as well I think that's very that's a really good point and it's very true and I'd have to agree because I would be, I can't be anonymous myself no. as a blind guide dog owner. So. Well, I think it's more that you get the choice around your own identity, you know, and that if I feel it helpful to me to think of myself, and I, I'm not being facetious when I this, say this, but to see myself as a warrior or fighting the disease or going into battle and beating it, that, that's fine if it's my decision, but it's not helpful to have it kind of thrust upon you, yeah. you know? I think at its most basic, what the um, pandemic has done has sort of created a prism for looking at mental health in so many uh, different ways. And one of them is the fact that it has really emphasised all of the different elements of disadvantage in society and how if you fall into any group that, if you like, is disadvantaged within society, the likelihood that your mental health has been negatively impacted is dramatically increased. So so-called intersectionality, whereas if you look across the board, certain groups of people are going to be more adversely affected. And that has been borne out in the data that is coming out on the health consequences of the pandemic. And that was very much predicted from the outset. If you look then at the way mental health issues have evolved over the course of the pandemic, one of the big concerns was that there might be a, an over-focus on natural 
human responses of stress to the pandemic and that that would be mislabeled as if you like a mental health crisis and in fact what it represents is is adaptive human response to stress that uh, something very dramatic happens puts you under a lot of stress and your emotions and your cognitions are going to respond in a certain way and there was a big fear among the we'd say the specialist mental health uh, community that if there was too much focus on that in the media and different conversations that it would take away a necessary focus on people who are really struggling within the realm of mental illness and that the discourse would be in the wrong direction and would potentially be more stigmatizing because we're shining more and more of a light on natural human stress and different responses like that and less and less on the severe end of difficulty. What we have seen is is that there has been a dramatic increase in mental health presentations across all of the services in Ireland there was initially a fall-off at the beginning relating to the fact that access was, was reduced. And then what began to happen is, is that there was increases in presentations to A&E, to community mental health services. And people that were presenting were presenting in much more acute states. So much less well, requiring quicker hospitalisation, longer hospital stays. So there's been all sorts of very, very serious consequences. In terms then of the idea of the openness of discussion around some of these issues, it's hard to say whether that just happens to be, you know, contemporaneous to what's happening or if it's a a product of a more sort of open discussion. But I do think that in general, people are more inclined to put themselves out there with whatever narrative they they identify with and um, speak to different difficulties or challenges they're having. So... In a way, you could say that's a positive. In a in a very in a strange way, there's there have been uh, some positive results. I think from the pandemic, in the sense that people realise that the importance of having a work life balance, and I actually think people have become much more open. But maybe I'm being overly optimistic. But I I do think there's been some positives. I think it's made us all stop mm-hmm. on the big you know, race track of life and stand back a bit and be a bit more accepting. I absolutely would agree with you on that. And for me, because of my professional background, I think the big question is that how helpful is it for people that are at that severe end, that are always, you know, marginalised and mm. uh, discriminated against. So how much conversation and all of that have we had about people with schizophrenia, with bipolar affective disorder, with severe depression, with severe eating disorders. And there is a danger in the nature of the discourse mm. that overemphasising the idea that you know, you had a bad day or you're yeah. feeling a bit down or you're a bit anxious, yeah. that that in some way seemed to replicate what, what is a very different experience of yeah. mental illness. And I think it's very important that there's room in the discourse yeah. for, for, well, we for that element. We don't yeah. demean. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but I think it, it, it seems to be there's different reasons. It's like there's the acceptable face of mental ill health and traditionally called mental illness, which has been replaced by the idea of mental health, which is just that general ebb and flow of of human life. It's more acceptable, it's more media-friendly, it's more something that a lot of people feel comfortable in relating to. And if you look at the 
traditional things that were markers of stigma and illness, the, yeah. di- the idea of curability, the idea of how um, treatability, all of those yeah. things influence ex- uh, stigma. Yeah. And I think a lot of those factors are still, sadly, as embedded as they ever were in the conversations. And what it also allows funders to do is focus on very, if you like, low-level type interventions that are just around, sure, have a little chat there and a cup of tea in your grant. (laughs) And it's not about, you know, the type of specialist input that's really required if, if you have a defined illness. But absolutely what, what you're saying is correct. I think opening a discourse is a very, very useful thing and just helping people to, to stop yeah. and think. But if you think back over some of the dialogue you may have heard on mental health, people would say, oh, you know, I couldn't go to the gym. It affected my mental health. I couldn't go to the petition. I couldn't go yeah. to the hairdresser. It's I couldn't. And absolutely, yes, you know, in that broad sense of mental health. But does it truly reflect mental uh, illness? Yeah. I agree with you. And I think that by you know, misuse of words and also not saying what it is. It can often demean it and, yeah, make people more comfortable. But I think that's what this whole discussion today has been about, which is so interesting that people find it difficult when, if you can't see something, you find it difficult. That's, in my, say, experience as, you know, when I had a white cane, it was totally different to now having a guide dog because people didn't know how to approach me, how to talk to me, and the fact that when I looked at people, I looked like I can see. So people didn't know why. <laughs> I was asking them, where was, what station, where were we at, et cetera, et cetera. So I do think people, they have to try and get beyond this. As you say, the tip of the iceberg is, is just the tip. I just want to kind of add to something that Blana said there, which is the whole kind of equality dimension, I think, of the experience of, of disability and invisible disability included. And again, I can only relate it to my own experience, but I know when I talk about this, I'm coming from a fairly privileged place. I have, to the best of my knowledge, a secure job. I have, you know, you know, I have security, have very good access to, to medical care and so on. So I think just the context for a lot of these issues is really different for different people and I can only imagine the added stress and strain of trying to manage a disability if you don't have the access I think that some of us are fortunate to have. Can I say to you both that it's been an amazingly enlightening conversation really enjoyed it and I'm going to ask you something now which is probably a bit more lighter but Deirdre, I'll ask you first, what's your blind spot? This has been preoccupying me for most of the discussion, (laughs) I have to say. Um, It's probably sport in general. I have no interest. I find it impossible to drum up any enthusiasm about it. I'm probably a disgrace to my family because my husband was a former, very successful GAA footballer. My dad was a brilliant hurler. But the whole arena of sport has just completely bypassed me. With apologies. That's fair enough. It's yeah. okay. Yeah. And Blanet? So equally, like Deirdre <laughs> there, I, I, I was trying to think about that. And what I would say my blind spot is uh, actually public speaking. So I'm really throwing myself into this uh, blind spot today because it's something that uh, is not my preferred thing to do. And uh, yeah, so right. that has been very a big blind spot for me. Oh, very good. So thank you very much to both of you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Blind Spot. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe. Until next time on The Blind Spot.
The Blind Spot podcast was funded under the University for All Faculty Partner Program and developed with the support of the UCD College of Business and UCD Access and Lifelong Learning.